Okay, I'm just going to read from Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Today, we are obviously looking at Romans chapter 6. Now, what's interesting is I initially chose this passage to preach this week to those who are getting baptized. I thought, what a great passage for those getting baptized. And I still think that it is a fantastic passage for those who are getting baptized. But as I began to study, I actually realized this passage is really not talking about baptism at all. (laughs) Although Paul uses the image of baptism to make a spiritual point. Paul's point is is simply this, that How do we view sin in light of God's grace? How are we to relate to sin? How are we to deal with sin in our walk with Christ? This topic clearly points to all Christian people, regardless of how long they've known the Lord, and is extremely relevant no matter how um, long you've been walking with him. Today's message then is not just for those getting baptized, but it's applicable to every one of us, regardless of what stage we're in. And really, this passage serves as a battle cry for the Christian life. I'll say that again. This passage is a battle cry to how you view sin in the Christian life. And you will go on daily dealing with this until Jesus comes back to get you or you pass away before he comes. So this passage is extremely relevant. Now, I'll give you a disclaimer. When I began to prepare this passage, I thought it was going to be relatively straightforward. (laughs) But like any of us who have grappled with Romans, that's not always the case. And Paul, as you know, is not easy to understand. But I don't feel that bad because the Apostle Peter felt the same way about Paul. Look at what Peter um, says about Paul in the following PowerPoint. He says, so then, dear friends, our dear brother Paul also wrote with you the wisdom that God gave him 
He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. <laughs> Paul is a contemporary of Peter. They're buddies. They're both apostles chosen by the Lord, both instructed by Jesus. And Peter is saying, Paul is difficult. So I don't feel bad when I found it difficult myself this week to fully understand what Paul was saying. Now, my prayer is that I don't fall in the category of unstable and ignorant. And that through the Holy Spirit's grace to me, I'm able to make what's complex, simple, and clear. If I don't, that's what the dialogue's for. And I love coffee, and we can go have that conversation anytime over the over a, a nice tea at brown sugar or wherever else you want to go. <laughs> so, let me give you the context before we dive in. In the first five chapters, Paul has gone to great lengths to point out how a person enters into a relationship with the Lord. In the beginning of Romans, it looks kind of bleak. He says that every individual, regardless of their ethnicity, their religious background, or any attempt to live moral lives, whether it's like following God's law and the Mosaic law as a Jew or a Gentile following the law written on their hearts, that all of us are going to fall under God's judgment. And the reason is simple, that no one has lived up to God's righteous standards. We break our own moral codes all the time. We break the laws of Moses. And so all have sinned. And as a result, we all fall under God's wrath. But Paul, as he develops the letter, starts to bring hope. And he says that God in his love provided a way for the humanity to be forgiven and enter into relationship. And so before chapter 6, verse 1, he makes this claim in Romans 5, 6 through 10. And we can read this together. He said, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So what Paul's pointing to here is that even though the situation looks bleak, God did something to provide a way for us to be restored and forgiven. Now, this word is often referred to in the Bible as grace. It's grace. It's God's gift to us that even though we don't deserve his forgiveness and a relationship, he extends it to us through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a nice acronym for grace that many of you will be familiar with. But we can define grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches, the provision of his son and his love for us, at Christ's expense. Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty that we were deserved. Now, Paul makes it clear, you receive this grace by faith. It's just a belief in what Jesus did for us. Well, there was a question going around the church probably in Rome based on what Paul says in chapter 6. And verse 1 gives you the context of what might have been, the, the believers might have thought. So Paul says the following in response to God's grace. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, that's an interesting question. Let me paraphrase this for you. This would be the attitude of a Christian today who would say something like this. Since salvation and our forgiveness is offered to us through God's gift, that being grace, and there's really nothing I can do to earn it, does it really matter then how I live following the forgiveness I receive? If it's by grace, does my life really matter in terms of the decisions I make, whether to sin or not to sin? In fact, if my relationship is founded on God's grace, surely that gives me a license to sin all the more. Because that gives God an opportunity to show how truly gracious he is. The more I sin, the more God looks good because he's going to cover me by grace. What does Paul say to this type of thinking? Verse 2. May it never be. May it never be. Paul uses this phrase 10 times in Romans. And I learned in my studies that this phrase, may it never be, is the strongest Greek saying for rejecting a statement. You can't get any more emphatic in rejecting something by saying, may it never be, in the Greek language. In our culture, if I was writing this, I would say Genesis House, not over my dead body. Don't think like that. That's how powerful the statement Paul's making. Paul's saying, you think you can go on sinning because God is gracious? Think again. Now, Paul begins to explain why, as a follower of Jesus, you should reject such a notion. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So what does Paul mean by that? Because he makes the statement, but really gives no disclaimer. Well, Paul sees it as something that's happened in the past. It's already completed. It's a done deal. Because he says, how shall we who died to sin? So it's a completed action. Paul, therefore, is like, likely looking back to their conversion. When these believers in Rome first gave their lives to Christ, we use the phrase born again. That's when they were born again, when they received the Holy Spirit. And the old nature, the one dominated by sin and sort of in the life of Adam, passed away and the new nature was given to us in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit in us is the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.17 helps us because Paul wrote that as well. Listen to his words. Therefore, if any was, anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The old is gone. The new is here. So when you receive Jesus Christ and are born again, you're a new creature. The old is gone. It's passed away. You've died. So if the old nature is gone and Jesus gave you a new nature and it's, it's him within you, united with you and identified with you, why then would you go on sinning with him united with you? You're a new creature. Why would you go back to the old and abuse God's grace?
to do so would be completely foreign to your identity in Christ and to disregard what he did for you on the cross. Before we look down on the Roman believers, we should maybe ask ourselves this very question. Do we see grace as a license to sin? Because we're forgiven and we know what's by grace alone, have we taken advantage of God's love for us and the gift of his eternal son to us? Or do we have a healthy balance of what Paul's saying to us that we need to die to sin as a believer? In fact, I love this definition of a Christian. Here's a new definition of a Christian for you. One who has died to sin. I don't know about you, but I never thought of my life sort of in that concise of a way until the last couple of days in my studies. I might have said a Christian's a follower of Jesus, and that's true. But Paul's saying a Christian is one who has died to sin. And I need to say this to you, especially the young people who are getting baptized and making a declaration for Christ. We probably in the North American church have done a bad job of handling the gospel. because. Our North American version, and I think I know it's changing. I can I can see the churches rising up and understanding this more and more. But for a long time, I think or what we've taught is that being a follower of Jesus is really about making a decision for Christ. It's about making a decision for Christ, and so we bank on the ceremony of receiving Him as our foundation of our Christian life. But what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, "Listen, this is much more than this." This is about living a life fully committed to him. This is about a life of obedience, a life of holiness, which is not a one-time decision. That's a daily decision. That's why Jesus had to say, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross wasn't a one-time event in the way you view yourself in relation to Jesus. It's a daily event. So following Christ is not a a single decision. It's a way of life. It's not a contract. It's a relationship. Why is it that so many Christians seem to go on sinning, especially willfully, after they've received God's grace? Well, one of the problems that we have is that we've often forgotten that even though salvation is free to us, it cost God something great. I'll say that again. Our problem is that even though we understand salvation to be free, we forget that it cost God greatly. God's wrath, by the way, on sin still fell. It just didn't fall on you and I but it fell on his son. And whatever you think of The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, whatever you think of that movie, one thing it did well is provide you and I with the act, an actual somewhat representation visual of how gruesome crucifixion really was, what it really cost God. I mean, when we, when we read the Gospels, it just says things like, and they led him away and he was crucified. And so with that simple statement, we all have our little cute version in our heads of what crucifixion looks like. All of you have a little version of what crucifixion looks like. 
But when you watch that movie, it just does something visceral to your body and your emotions. And he probably didn't even portray it to the degree that it really was in its fullness. You see, when we remember the cost to God, this should radically change how we view sin, how we deal with sin, and should radically change the way we live and think and the choices we make. How shall we who died to sin still live in it, especially when you consider the cost to the Father? Paul uses two illustrations to help us grasp the reality that we have died to sin so as not to take advantage of God's grace. The first one was baptism. The second one is crucifixion. Let's look at baptism. Verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Here we begin to see the difficulty in Paul that Peter was talking about. <laughs> you see, the word baptism in Greek simply means to immerse oneself. Baptism is to immerse oneself or cover oneself. At first glance, you could read baptism here as being literal. The baptism he's speaking of is water baptism. But the issue is that Paul uses, Paul and Jesus uh, often use baptism in other ways. And the scriptures make this clear. It can be used metaphorically to describe spiritual realities. Let me show you two ways in which this can come to fruition. Baptism can refer to receiving the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist is speaking. He's been baptizing people in literal water, but then he turns to people and makes the following declaration. Someone is coming soon who is greater than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about being baptized in suffering in Mark 10, 38. James and John, the knuckleheads they are, are claiming about the, well, they're asking Jesus, who's going to sit at your right hand? Can we sit at your right hand? And Jesus says, are you prepared to suffer the way I'm going to suffer? And they said, yeah, I am. Well, actually, he says, are you prepared to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to undergo? And they say, yes, we are. <laughs> and here's what Jesus says. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? And so, again, it's not immersed in the Holy Spirit. It should say immersed in suffering as a second point. So you can see baptism is not so clear in the scriptures about which one is Paul is really referring to. You will listen to one pastor talk about water baptism. You'll talk to another pastor, say it's all metaphorical, and so you're left with, well, who's right? And when you read the commentaries, they both give evidence for both. But here's the point. 
whichever one it is, and what, and maybe Paul's speaking of both. He's going back and forth. Whichever one it is, he's making one spiritual point. And one spiritual truth that, that does not change regardless of how you interpret this. You see, he says here, we have been um, baptized into Christ Jesus. He says, we have been immersed into Christ Jesus. And we've been immersed into his death in verse 3. That means that you and I, regardless of whether it's through the, the, the ceremony in terms of what the, uh, the ceremony is de declaring or showing, or receiving the Holy Spirit, you and I have been united and identified with Jesus through his death and resurrection. As a result, sin should have no dominion in a believer's life. You're immersed into Jesus, and so sin should have no reign in a believer's life, no power, no authority. And furthermore, the death and resurrection had a purpose in verse 4. He says there that we too might walk in the newness of life. However you want to view baptism, the goal is that you and I would walk in newness of life. James Dunn in his commentary said it this way, when, that when a person receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, it, quote, means a decisive transition to a radically new lifestyle. When you receive Christ, it means a decisive transition to a radically new lifestyle. He gives us a new identity, a new purpose, a new nature, a new hope. So back to the original question, are we to go on sinning, knowing that we've been saved by grace? Paul says, may it never be. Paul furthers his thought with a second illustration using crucifixion. Look at verse 5. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Paul's use of crucifixion is a really important one. See, it also gives us a, a spiritual reality check or a stark visual for us in terms of how we view sin in our Christian walk. If I were to ask you about salvation and what you think about our salvation and what it cost, you would think of only one crucifixion to redeem you, wouldn't you? At least I would as well. We would think, I know what happened at Calvary. Jesus died for me. There was one cross, one person on the cross. What is Paul saying? You also died with him. Your old self was crucified with him. He wants you and I to realize that when Jesus died, we died. It wasn't just him on the cross. We were to see ourselves as being on the cross with him. So when he's dying for sin, we're dying to sin. He's dying for sin, and you're up there with him saying no to sin yourself. You're dying to it. Two deaths at Calvary, not one. Very powerful. 
And so he gives you the purpose for this crucifixion besides dying, well, it's dying to sin, but he goes a little further. He says, in order that the old might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Paul wants you to see that by you being crucified with Jesus, that you gain victory over the sin you once could not have victory over. He's proclaiming a victorious lifestyle for the believer, not a condemned one. You see, when you're crucified, the old body of sin is done away with. In other words, you died there that day with Jesus, the old nature, the old person, so that you would not be a slave to sin. Because what's a, what's a slave got sort of against them? They have no authority and no power. The only way a slave gets free from their master is to die, isn't it? Once you're a slave, you're in that position forever, unless there's another contract made to release you. But the only escape of a slave out of someone else's power, dominion, and authority is to die. And he says, when you see yourself as dead to sin and dying on the cross of Jesus, that old slave master that possessed you, the power of sin that dominated your life, has been crucified. It's gone. You've been released. That's why someone who's died is freed from sin. No more power over you. No more dominion. You have victory in Christ Jesus. Now, sin's enticing, and it wants you, it pulls you in to serve yourself. But if you nail it to the cross, it won't enslave you like it once did. So Paul goes on to speak more about this and continues his theme in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's point, although wordy, is pretty simple. He's basically saying, guys, remember that Jesus died once. And because he defeated death, he can't die again. If you've defeated death, there's, you can't die again. You've defeated it. So when he came, he defeated death by dying for the sins that led to death in the first place. The reason why we die is because of sin. So if Jesus rises from the dead, he's defeated sin. There's no point in him re-dying for the same thing. He's already won. There's victory in Christ. In the same way, verse 11, even consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So when you and I come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we enter into that same victory over sin that Jesus did. We stand in the ability to resist to that which used to enslave and dominate us. And so Paul continues in verse 12. He says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as sins to instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be your master, or should not master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. There is a new relationship for the believer to sin. Through the life he has given us, we can live in victory 
Sin does not have to master us, and sin does not have to reign in our mortal body so that we obey its lusts. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and obeying his voice, we can say no and live a victorious life. I want to speak to one really important issue. And I've talked about this before, but this passage is really an important place to speak about it. It's this language that goes through the Christian church about we're a bunch of sinners and we're always going to be a bunch of sinners. That seems to contradict Paul, doesn't it? We have died to sin. That type of language speaks about no victory. We're always going to sin. We're always going to fall short. We're always never going to measure up. How do we balance that when, when, when in verse 2, he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? How do we balance that with verse 6? He says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we will no longer be slaves to sin. How do we balance that verse Verse 12? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And how do you balance that with 14, that sin shall not be your master, for you're not under the law but under grace? Paul is telling us that we can live a victorious life. That's not because of who we are. It's because of Jesus in us. And we just have to choose to say no to the sin and stand in his victory and obey his Holy Spirit's voice in our life. If we tell everyone that you will always be stuck in your sin and you're never going to change, then I don't see the point of any recovery programs or anybody with addictions coming to you and saying that they're struggling. Someone comes to you as an alcoholic and says, listen, I can't, I can't defeat this alcoholism. And I say, well, don't worry. I can't defeat being a gossip. So really... Jesus is going to forgive you, but that's as far as it goes. We'd never counsel that way. We would say, no, through the power of the Holy Spirit and a new identity in Jesus, that old man and that old woman can be gone, and Christ can free you and forgive you, and you can stand in victory. You can die to that old way of life. And see, that's what the word sanctification means in Scripture, doesn't it? Sanctification means the maturing of a believer, the set, being the set apart. So as the years go on, let's, let's consider this a triangle and sins down here at the biggest base. You first become, come to Jesus, you're forgiven, but you've got a lot of crazy stuff in your, your past and your background. So all you know is the sinful way of life. So there's this triangle at the base. You come to Jesus. Fast forward 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, it should start to look like this. The sin's getting less and less and less as Jesus does more and more and more in your life. That's the message of what Paul is saying. Otherwise, you're in contradiction. He's saying, don't let it rain in your body and obey its lust. It shall not master you. But we speak as if we're mastered by it. We need to align ourselves with Paul and his thinking and say, we have victory in Jesus Christ. The new nature, the old man is gone, the new has come. Praise God. Stand in the victory that Jesus has provided for you and for me. See why now this is a battle cry, not just for those getting baptized, but for every believer.
But those of you who are getting baptized, I pray that this message will shape your understanding of the ceremony you're committing to and, and help you even understand the testimony that you will write in response to what you're doing that day. So I've written the lessons in form of questions. And these questions are, well, there's a, there's a handful, but you could ask probably another 15 more on top of it. So forgive me if it's a little bit on the short side. But let me just read these questions to you and ask you these questions. How have you viewed your relationship to sin in light of your understanding of God's grace? Have you treated his grace as a license to sin because you know he's a forgiving God? Or have you responded to his grace through striving to live a life of holiness? Second question. Paul defines a Christian as someone who has died to sin. How does this definition change your understanding of the gospel as well as what it means to be a follower of Christ? Question three, how may Paul's definition shape the way you live in terms of the way you think and choices you make going forward? Question four, what areas of your life is Jesus currently asking you to die to or die in? Areas in your marriage, areas in your relationship to your children, areas in work. Issues of your character. What's the Lord saying? Don't take advantage of God's grace. Die to sin. What areas is he calling you to? And finally, how will the images of baptism and crucifixion shape your view of sin and your relationship to it? How do you think they will aid you in gaining victory over the temptation that sin brings? See, right now, when you go, when there's a temptation to sin, you probably just experience this fleshly pull towards it. But what if the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance today's sermon, and as sin enticed you, the, the crucif- you dying with Jesus on the cross came up. You were united with him as death. And you, when sin comes, you think of, oh my goodness, I died at Calvary with Jesus. The changes that that would make, right? What about... Um, the good baptism, if you take it from water baptism, as you're about to sin, you remember you going into the water and you, your sins are buried there and you come out with newness of life. These images can stand as very powerful illustrations to help you in the midst of temptation. I think for me, the crucifixion one is especially important. Because when you face sin like I do, the first thing that happens is your flesh just says, I want it, and I want it now. I want to serve myself and not the Lord. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your message. Thank you for Paul and the way you transformed his life. How you taught him through his own, his own walk that obedience to the law never made you right. And it was through your righteousness and your sacrifice on the cross that we'd only be covered for sin. Thank you, God, that you gave us new images today, that we could use the image of baptism and crucifixion to help us understand the victorious life that we can lead 
and the provision you've made for us in victory because of what you've done for us. Thank you for the new identity you've given us, the new purpose, the new hope, the new nature that our old man is gone and that we have a, a battle plan for victory and we can resist because of the strength that you've provided in us. Lord, we give you thanks for your gospel and the book of Romans. As complex it is, is as it is, it's got incredible spiritual truths that if we seek to diligently understand can be so profound in the way they shape our lives. So we give you thanks and we just ask for a special blessing over your people today as they leave. May they feel encouraged as they walk out of here and may they feel like they have a renewed purpose to serve you in all that they say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.